Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. States and his wife and here we go let's hit it I can't hear myself And welcome to this very musical 30th episode of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay and as usual I'm joined by Malcolm Craig. Hello Malcolm. Hello Mark. Yes, 30 episodes. <laughs> Who would have thought it? Although as the resident American History 2 pedant it's actually 31 episodes because we did that 15A and 15B <laughs> on Jimmy Carter. But Basically, yeah, we're trying to we're trying to reconcile ourselves to presidential trivia because you know it's what is Obama the forty fourth president and yet there's only been forty three men. So. Yes, Grover yeah. Cleveland, all the blah blah blah, all that kind of yeah. So, uh, but it seems very appropriate that for this thirtieth episode we welcome back a guest who is pretty rapidly becoming the third member of the American History Two team, uh, our man in London, Fraser McCallum of the Imperial War Museum. Thank you, doctors. It's a, a pleasure to be with you again, albeit remotely down uh, down south. I know, I know. It feels it feels so distant. But anyway, so uh, before we get into discussing today's topic, um, which uh, we we have actually heard Fraser do present a conference paper on on presidential campaign music, uh, we're going to bring back the opening question for one time only, due to what is going on in America just now, and that is the the looming election um, that's taking place on November 8th. So with that in mind, I thought I would ask you both, do you have a favourite election or perhaps an election that you think's especially revealing um, of the United States at the moment it's held? And Malcolm, I'll come to you first with that. Well, I mean, perhaps just because I'm about to teach it uh, on Friday, I think the election of 1800 
effectively between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson is fascinating because we often think of negative campaigning, attack ads, all that kind of thing as part of the modern political culture. But the election of 1800 was very much, I mean, there was all these attacking pamphlets that was trying to do down your opposition. People were arrested and thrown in jail because of things they said about, you know, opposing candidates and all that kind of thing. So it was a fascinating, uh, fascinating election and it kind of ushered in kind of almost the end of the the Federalist Party, the rise of Jefferson's Democratic Republicans, the kind of the start of real hardcore party politics uh, in America. Uh, so I think that's a fascinating period, a fascinating election, and a very modern election when you look back on it. So are you saying when uh, when Donald Trump threatened to jail Hillary Clinton, he was drawing inspiration from the election of 1800? Uh, not quite. Uh, someone was jailed under the Alien and Sedition Act uh, because of publishing a, a pamphlet uh, relating to the election. But uh, that was pro-Jeffersonian. Uh, not quite, I would say. Not quite. Okay. So I, uh, I doubt Donald Trump even knows about the election of 1800. So, Fraser, uh, can you one-up Malcolm's 1800 shout? Uh, I'm far more recent than that. Um I mean, there's, there's a few, actually, that spring to mind. And, you, know, you said favourites and, and important. Um, you know, favourites, 2000 is, is important uh, for me personally as a sort of awakening of an interest in, in American politics for, for obvious reasons. And, uh, and 2008, I mean, was just so fascinating. Everyone quite rightly focuses on the momentous uh, occasion of the election of the first African-American president. But the entire campaign through the primaries and, uh, you know how close it was between Clinton and, and Obama at different times, and the, the the ways that you know that was what the first one I properly followed. I think you know all the nuances of. So they they both are are quite um, important to me personally. But in terms of uh, your broader question, nineteen sixty eight is the uh, is the one. Uh, you know I I can't quite relate to the election of eighteen sixty. So nineteen sixty eight is you know not so far away. It's a very similar. Uh, culture in a lot of ways to, to today and uh, yet it's so close to you know the a country being ripped apart uh, and actually a, a, a party been ripped apart and we're seeing that just now with the, the GOP in this case it was the, the Democratic Party so you know that, that's the one probably most interested in Cool. Um, so my shout is going to be the 1916 election and uh, well I can have to say this because I did my undergraduate dissertation on it um, so Basically, uh, held uh, right before, well, as Europe is in the midst of World War One, or much of the world is in the midst of World War One, um, and the United States is still deciding whether to get involved in it, uh, the President Woodrow Wilson, he of gigantic racist fame, um, is up against the Republican Charles Evans Hughes. And uh, he runs on the campaign slogan, he kept us out of war, even though Wilson doesn't actually like the phrase, he probably knows that America's going to get into war, but there's a lot of people, especially in the West of America, who want nothing to do with the war. Um, and the election itself um, is incredibly close, despite the fact that uh, Charles Evans Hughes was called the bearded iceberg, such was his lack of charisma. And Hughes goes to bed believing he's president, and so the apocryphal tale goes. He, uh, a reporter calls uh, to, speak to, to speak to Charles Evans Hughes. The butler answers the phone and says, sorry. Um, the president is actually sleeping just now and the journalist tells him, well, you should wake him up and tell him he's not president. Um, <laughs> because uh, California went to Woodrow Wilson by 3,800 votes 
um, and had they gone, had uh, you know just half of them switch sides, then Charles Evans Hughes uh, would be a name you would know much better, and Woodrow Wilson would be a somewhat forgotten president probably. But anyway, um, or moving on to today's episode in which we're going to discuss the history of uh, US presidential campaign music and maybe also get into kind of broader chat about how presidential elections have sort of functioned as a pseudo-entertainment industry in the United States. So Fraser, we have both enjoyed your, your conference papers on this subject. So could you set the scene by telling us what attracted you uh, to discussing the use and abuse of music in political campaigns? Well, you know, a, a lot of the work I do uh, is is based around uh, an interest in popular culture and the effect popular culture has on political culture and the effect political culture has on popular culture. Um, and as a, I mean, everyone who knows me knows I'm a huge uh, fan of uh, Bruce Springsteen. So around 2004, when, when John Kerry was running and, and Springsteen sort of emerged as a, you know, as a, as a political figure in that campaign for the first time in his career, I sort of piqued my interest a little bit, and and uh, as the election cycles have followed, I have continued. Um, you know that the prevalence of popular music seems to have become more and more important, and uh, so it was the genesis of an idea, really. You know, going back, you know, over ten years, that's uh, just developed over time, and I think the the recent campaign has sort of you know brought to light the the sheer entertainment aspect of, of uh, modern politics. So that's really where it comes from. And it also was an opportunity to do something a bit more um, lighthearted and fun in terms of conference work. Um, you know, a lot of conference papers can be quite dry and I, uh, you know, the, the, the little showman inside me decided to, to have a bit of fun doing it. So that, that's really where it came from. So, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, we, as Mark said, we really enjoyed your, your conference papers. And they are kind of, you know, it's an incredibly entertaining and engaging subject. So I'm interested in, you know, to get us started, how far back do we go with the idea of the campaign song? So one of my favourite pieces of presidential music is the if undoubtedly chart-topping uh, Get on the Raft with Taft, uh, supporting the campaign of William Howard Taft. And I think, Mark, we're going to have a brief interlude where we'll be able to hear a snippet of Get on the Raft with Taft. Yes, indeed, we can uh, let that go by. Here's a quick clip. The time has come, the fight is on, we've picked the man to run. For president, Ohio sent our noble, worthy son. The man we need, the man to lead our strong and mighty craft. Through storm at sea, to victory, it's William Howard Taft. Ah, get on a raft with Taft, boys, get on the winning boat. The man worthwhile with a friendly smile will get the honest boat. He'll save the country, sure, boys from Brian. So, I mean, one can only assume that Taft's raft was uh, very sturdy, uh, considering he was a rather large gentleman. <laughs> uh, so is that the emergence of campaign-specific music as a, as a popular form, or does it go back further than that? I mean, I'm, kind of, I'm vaguely aware that Rutherford B. Hayes deployed the chart-topping Hayes the True and Wheeler too, although I don't know the lyrics of that. One can only assume it was... Uh, as as catchy as get on the raft with Taft. Well, you know who who the uh, credited songwriter of Hayes the True and Wheeler Two is. It's uh, someone known as R. E. Publican, <laughs> 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 which I can only assume is a pseudonym. I, I mean, I'd love it to be real, but I can't find any evidence of a, a songwriter in, in the eighteen seventies called uh, you know R. E. Publican. 
Um, but Hayes of True and Wheeler 2 is based on um, the song Tipping Canoe and Tyler 2, or Tipping Tie, uh, which predates that by, by some way. I mean, that's the, the election of uh, 1840. Uh, William Henry Harrison and uh, John Tyler being the, the candidates. Uh, so that's playing on that that song um, and, and the probably the folk memory of that song. But there's, I mean, there are songs that go all the way back to the, the election of 1800, um, you know, songs about uh, Jefferson and, and Adams, particularly sort of competing songs with similar titles. So there, there's there's a heritage there that you know, dates back almost to the beginning of the Republic. So, I mean, just to pick up then on these early songs, would uh, would it be a case that the that people would go to attend a campaign event and you would have a, a, a performer like, you know, performers spread out, they would then play the songs at the campaign event, given, you know, it wasn't like they could, you know, log on to Spotify or anything back then. Yeah, I mean, that's that's right. Um, you know, you'd have live performances. Uh, they, they would quite often start out uh, small as, as local uh, things. Um, if you use uh, Tip and Tie as an example, um, that was written by a man called uh, Alexander Kaufman Ross, who, who was a, a jeweler, a jewelry, he had a jewelry store in uh, Zanesville, Ohio. And he, he wrote these lyrics to the, the sort of theme of Little Pigs, which is an old minstrel tune. Uh, and he would perform it at Whig Party meetings in Zanesville and then slightly more around Ohio. And then he, as a jeweler, he went on a business trip to, to New York, which was even then the commerce capital, and uh, played at a Whig rally there. And from there, it sort of you know filtered out into the, the broader uh, national uh, Whig party organisation um, but that, that would be one way in which the, these songs would so they'd then be played at various rallies the other thing is that uh, they would sell uh, sheet music so much like you, you back in the olden days you could buy a, a record or a CD, now you probably buy a, a download code but um, yeah, you could buy uh, sheet music of these songs and that would help disseminate the, the music out to a wider audience Yeah, I mean the, the other thing I wanted to ask is, I mean, how often were the campaign songs planned by the campaigns themselves? Because I, I think about one of the, the most famous ever campaign songs was uh, obviously Franklin Roosevelt's Happy Days Are Here Again. Um, and you would think that that was very much planned out because, well, it sort of fits into the, here's FDR, he's going to bring back hope during the Great Depression, Happy Days Are Here Again. Um, but it was, it was sort of accidental that it got played spontane- spontaneously at the Democratic National Convention, um, I think to try and G up the crowd after a really bad speaker before FDR came out. I mean, how frequently are, are they are they these planned out? Well, you see, that's again the, the, the difference between these early ones where they're written by professional songwriters, uh, quite often with a, an idea in mind that then get taken up. In this case, uh, this is a bit more like what would happen in the future, that uh, something will happen, you know, they'll, they'll play it because it fits a broad theme and it you know, starts to gather some momentum and becomes attached. I mean, the Democrats played uh, Happy Days Are Here Again for, for years, decades. Uh, afterwards, it became, you know, almost like an unofficial anthem. Uh, but what's interesting about Happy Days Are Here Again is it was a, a pre-existing popular song. I mean, it came from a, from a film. Uh, it, was, it was recorded in 1929. The film came out in 1930. The film's called Chasing Rainbows. It's a, one of those uh, MGM uh, Technicolor musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, so the song, you know, the song was in sort of popular consciousness. You've got to remember, I think we talked about this on a podcast before, about the sheer number of people who visited cinemas 
in those days. So the song was probably well known, and uh, then you know then went on to take a life of its own. Uh, it became known as "Happy Days" or "Beer Again" um, after the repeal of prohibition. <laughs> um, you know, but but "Happy Days" again is like a, a sort of it's one of the classic American songs. It's on the you know what they call the Great American Songbook. It, you know, it's in the Recording Industry Association of America's list of um, songs of the century. You know, so it, it's always had a, an important place, I think, in American culture. And the fact that uh, they cottoned onto it quite early, I think, sort of helps that along, you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just to, I mean, after obviously the, the sort of 1930s, for the, the, the sort of 20, 30 years after, uh, after the Second Modern War, you have what you could best be described as the jingle era in American politics, an era which I very much miss. Um, I'm just going to play the listeners a, a very quick clip from the song I Like Ike, uh, a campaign ad for Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1952. I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president. Hang out the banner and beat the drum, we'll take Ike to Washington. We don't want John or Dean or Harry, let's do that big job right. Let's get in step with the guy that's up, get in step with Ike. You like Ike. So that was I Like Ike, um, and it was successful. Ike was indeed elected um, on the back of that campaign still on. I'm sure it not nothing to do with his World War II uh, service or anything. Uh, so, Fraser, why does this jingle era become such a fad? You know, it pops up, you know, really intensely for 20 years in political campaigns and then almost disappears from the early 1970s onwards. Well, I mean, firstly, may I just say, given where I'm currently employed, I think his World War II service had a lot to do with it, just so I don't get in trouble. But um, primarily, in answer to your question, the uh, the, the jingle era comes around uh, really as a response to to firstly radio and, and then television. So the jingle itself is, is perfect for the radio era. Um, short and snappy, fits into advertising slots really easily. Um, it's, you know, sort of an advertising 101 in this sort of early, more primitive age of advertising that you do something hummable and memorable. Uh, and then when, when television comes in, so, you know, we get to the, the Eisenhower era, uh, they, they simply adapted tried and tested advertising methods from radio onto television. So that's why you see a lot of crossovers, a lot of things on, if you look at those classic uh, adverts for domestic products or, or cars or whatever uh, from the 50s, you know, they could easily just just as easily work on radio. You don't necessarily rely on the visual. Um, so it's, and that's simply all, the, all that happened there is that they just adapted pre-existing methods onto a new uh, technology. And as for why it died out, I mean, I don't know, it's a really, not really a hard and fast answer to that. I just think, in my opinion, it's just a change in tastes. Uh, you see campaign jingles uh, last through, you know, into the 60s, and they, they don't really work in the same way that the campaigns that are successful, the campaigns that are memorable and have some, you know, real impact that capture the zeitgeist are, are going a different direction. Uh, I'm thinking really of uh, 1960, uh, when uh, Richard Nixon's uh, campaign song, which is, uh, I think it was a Click With Dick, uh, Click With Dick, the dick that we cannot lick, um, to give an actual line from the song, was was uh, modelled oh, around... Oh, how times have changed. Yes, yes. It was uh, modelled along, along the lines of the, the jingle uh, ones. I mean, it was a full song, but the, 
the click with dick bit was really a jingle and you, they actually made little uh, hand clickers to sort of click along in time uh, based around the, you know, so it was very much in the jingle tradition. But uh, the song that his opponent, John F. Kennedy, used, which was uh, High Hopes, um, which again was uh, similar to uh, Happy Days of You Again, was a popular song, um, sung by Frank Sinatra uh, from the Hollywood musical. And, you know, that obviously uh, became sort of closely connected with the, the whole New Frontier beginning of a new decade, the, the young, handsome, vigorous, you know, the image of Kennedy that we're all familiar with. Uh, and in sort of comparison with this dated 50s style jingle uh, that Nixon had. So thinking again of Richard Nixon, only this time when he's kind of campaigning in 1972 as, as the incumbent president, having already served for one term, and he releases this campaign song called Nixon Now, which is this kind of like upbeat, kind of cheery kind of jingle, which we heard as part of our kind of like uh, audio montage at the very start of the, the episode. It seems so at odds with the personality <laughs> and policies of Nixon. I mean, is it just, is it pure propaganda? Is that all it is? And can you tell us how, how did Nixon now come about? Well, it's part of a very effective integrated marketing campaign. You know, Nixon now or Nixon Nixon now actually starts in the '68 election. Like they use uh, ideas of new Nixon, and the phrase Nixon now starts to appear. Then it's almost like they've carried this thread through four years later on, and they they change it to Nixon now more than ever, which is shortened to Nixon now. Nixon's really interesting in in this regard because he he spends so much time in the you know in the, in the '50s and the '60s with this very dated image. And he does something really smart in the, the 68 election. He he gets his, his campaign song in 68 was sung by Connie Francis. And Connie Francis by 1968 is a passy figure. But the people who are voting for Nixon grew up on Connie Francis. So even though she's passy to the, the pop culture zeitgeist of the time, that's not who he's, he's appealing to. He's appealing to people who think of her and think of their youth. And as a lot of us do as we get older, we... You know, think of our our youth as you know halcyon days of endless sunshine and rainbows, and uh, <laughs> it was it was really effective in that regard. Uh, so he did that on the one hand, and then obviously you know famously he he did his law and order, silent majority, dog whistle politics on the other. So by the time he gets to seventy two, he's starting to look ahead to legacy, and we know where that ends up with with Watergate, but. But he's doing things like he's doing some really, I mean, again, he's such a complex figure. He's doing some really interesting things like he's doing this radical EPA uh, legislation, uh, you know, far more radical than, than anyone's ever done since. And uh, it kind of is, you can almost tell that he's, he's trying to shift his popular image away from Tricky Dick to, you know, someone, someone that's going to be remembered more fondly. And, and Nixon now, that, that kind of upbeat, it's very, it's also very, given the times as well, it's quite Partridge family or, you know, the carpenters or it's, it's, you know, that sunny California kind of vibe to it without the, the drugs and hippie and cool stuff that made, you know, popular music of the time uh, so appealing. So it's actually, you know, it's, it's all, all for all that it's a terrible song and no one should ever have to listen to it, you know, it actually makes a lot of sense in uh, context. It's just that we now look back on Nixon as, as a devil and, you know, as a crook. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would echo something you mentioned that's very much in fitting with the with the new Nixon, um, which of I think there was about seventeen new Nixons throughout <laughs> his entire career. I believe I remember there was like a, a campaign spot that Hubert Humphrey had, where he basically went through all the different types of Nixon that they've had. Um, one of uh, Humphrey's uh, rare moments of levity, but sort of sticking with Nixon, but or at least an event he was involved in. So in 1972, Nixon obviously wins this huge, big 50-state victory over uh, the Democrat, um, George McGovern, uh, who's most remembered uh, for the the three A's that the Nixon campaign tarred him with, acid, amnesty, and abortion. And George McGovern, very much for that reason, sort of goes down as a, as a historical footnote, except for the fact that Fraser, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but perhaps he had his biggest effect in the world of campaign music. You're absolutely right. Uh, 1972, June, uh, June 14th, in Madison Square Garden, George McGovern has uh, Simon and Garfunkel on stage to sing Bridge Over Troubled Water, which became his uh, campaign anthem. Now, McGovern didn't really use it on television adverts, but he, he used it um, at rallies and rallies that were on radio and, and all these things. So Bridge Over Troubled Water you know, was off of... Uh, of the self-titled album, which was one of the biggest hits of the day, you know. So the the this is where it keys into something really important: the the use of popular radio-friendly songs, which are going to be heard over and over again, uh, even if it's independent of the campaign, uh, is is like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of free advertising. So from that kind of like defining moment of kind of McGovern kind of really integrating. You know, popular, not just you know, has been like Connie Francis. I feel bad saying that because my gran was a huge Connie Francis fan, but it has been like you know Connie Francis into you know a musical style and musical artists who were genuinely popular at the time with a with a widespread audience. I'd like to turn to you know a singer that that you are kind of you know fascinated by and a huge fan of in the form of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, so let's let's get to the boss and born in the USA. Because if ever a song was you know, misused and abused in political campaigns in the United States, it's born in the USA, and it seems to stem from this misunderstanding that it's this rousing patriotic anthem when nothing could be further from the truth. But you're yeah. the expert on both Springsteen and the use of this song. So I'll leave it, I'll leave it up to you to talk about it more. Oh, okay, so so Born in the USA is the the, the title track of uh, 1984 album, uh, which which makes Springsteen uh, a megastar. I mean, he was a big star before, but this takes it to a whole other level. This puts him on the you know the the top echelon with with the, the Madonnas and Michael Jacksons, all the other sort of 80s icons. You know, and this is what leads to him filling stadiums and and uh, it's it comes about. So Springsteen has this, this track in mind about a returning Vietnam veteran. Because uh, Springsteen was not a, you know, not a well-educated man, and when he became famous and wealthy, he sort of undergoes a, a period of self-education. So he reads a lot, and he, he sees a lot of series, films, things that he, he'd never engaged with before. So he, you know, he, he comes into contact with things like Taxi Driver and, and gets really interested in this idea of the damaged Vietnam veteran. And uh, he's, he has this song that he doesn't really know what to do with. And he gets sent a script by uh, Paul Schrader, who, ironically enough, wrote Taxi Driver. Um, 
which I'm not sure is ever. I don't know what the script was meant to be about. But he actually wanted Springsteen to star in it. You know, he, he looked at Bruce Springsteen, thought he he could be a an actor, and and the title of the script was born in the USA. So he stole the, <laughs> he stole the title and, and gave it to this uh, wow. this song, and the song is this like a really angry, ironic uh, discussion on the way Vietnam veterans are treated when they come back, uh, and the born in the USA is a sort of you know, an angry cry, you know, that I was born here and I should be treated better and, you know, I did this for my government and my government have let me down. The problem with it is that, and part of the reason why the song was so successful is it's very 80s in style. It's quite uplifting and and, uh, enjoyable in its production values. Uh, So it's quite easy to see why if you don't listen to it properly, it's um, it's misunderstood. And it it became, you know, the born in the USA bit became a sort of fist waving or, you know, fist pumping uh, chorus. Uh, and if you take that out of the context of of the, the lyrics of the rest of the verses, uh, it's easy to see why uh, Ronald Reagan uh, said in a, a 1984 uh, rally in New Jersey, where Springsteen is, of course, from, uh, that America's future, and I'm quoting here, America's future rests in a thousand dreams inside your hearts. It rests in the message of hope in the songs of a man so many young Americans admire, New Jersey's own Bruce Springsteen. Which in itself is not particularly a controversial statement. Uh, but the fact is that <laughs> Reagan's campaign team wanted to use Born in the USA as their official campaign song, which uh, led Springsteen to then say, you know, on live on stage that the president said some very nice things about me. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. If he knows my work, he, I certainly don't think he's listened to the Nebraska album. Nebraska, Nebraska being the, the record uh, before, which is all about, you know, murderers and uh, people living, you know, really tough lands and the, the bad lands. And, and, you know, very much like uh, a John Steinbeck novel um, set to, to record. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Born in the USA thing is, I always find it hilarious because I remember being a kid and like at dances when it would come on, I loved Born in the USA and I thought it was like this upbeat, patriotic American song and everything. So uh, I had my spirit crushed as well when I found out. Did I, am I right in thinking, did Springsteen not release like a darker version of Born in the USA to sort of combat Reagan's use of that? Or am I, or am I misremembering? No, there's it's a, a recorded version of it, which is just him and a guitar again in the vein of the Nebraska uh, record, uh, which you can find on uh, on tracks, which is his like compilation of you know um, outtakes and unreleased material, and uh, yeah, it's certainly more uh, fitting. Uh, and he actually he brings it around every now and again. So at the height of the um, the action, uh, the the the, the um, at the height of the war in Iraq uh, in two thousand three four, he would play. Born in the USA live in concert, but again as a, a slowed down acoustic piece. Uh, but yeah, you know, other times you play it um, as heard on the, the original record. Yeah, but there, there you go. You put in the contract, we had to talk about Springsteen for at least five minutes. That's Excellent. it, boxed off. Well done. Thank, thank <laughs> I'll, I'll go now. That's me done. <laughs> um, so. Moving on to to this current campaign, um, which has very much seen the both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton embrace pop music, different types of pop music. But uh, for example, Hillary Clinton's very much embraced, you know, the the fight song, 
um, which I'm just going to play a quick clip just now, um, that which was recorded for the, the the Democratic National Convention and had a you know many different stars from the Hollywood and music industry appearing on the video. Um, so here we go. This is for Hillary. Like a small boat on the ocean, sending big waves into motion. Like I was single, can make a heart open. I might only have one match, but I can make an explosion. And all those things I didn't say, wrecking balls inside my brain. I will scream and loud tonight. Can you hear my voice this time? This is our fight song. Take back our life song. Prove we're alright song. My power's turned on. I've still got a lot of fight left in me. Okay, um, so as well as the fight song, you also have Hillary Clinton also had the Katy Perry's song Roar was another one. Um, I mean, do you think in, in Clinton's use of music has has been successful? I mean, do you think many people imagine Hillary Clinton listening to these songs, for example? No, I don't think many people imagine the 69-year-old Secretary, former Secretary of State, is a big fan of Katy Perry, but um, certainly what Katy Perry represents in pop culture for young people, especially, is this uh, this form of popular feminism. You know, the same sort of thing you see in the Taylor Swift and, and Beyonce Knowles, uh, and that is uh, you know really useful, I think, for the the Hillary campaign, particularly in attempting to attract young voters and women, and particularly young female voters who. Uh, we saw in the primary campaign seemed to be uh, drawn to somewhat inexplicably to the 74-year-old Bernie Sanders. Um, so in that regard, I think it's quite useful. And, uh, and Roar is, particularly Roar, seems almost tailor-made to be set to a campaign ad. I mean, uh, if you go online and search the uh, I'm ready for Hillary, it's like one of the super pack adverts that they put out. That's It was them that used that first. Uh, and absolutely no way, of course, officially affiliated with the Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, which no one believes. But you know, um, you should you can find that on YouTube, and it's uh, you know it's perfect. You know, in terms of uh, it's 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 made for like nice segues from black and white photography into more black and white images, and it's very very effective. And certainly against uh, you know her opponents' uh, use of music, which has been all over the place in terms of strategy much like his rest of his campaign i guess you uh, can't been, always get what you want i mean what candidate comes on yeah. to a song that says that yeah tr- trump i mean actually that you mentioned at the start about me doing this as a conference paper and the, the genesis of that was when uh when trump announced his candidacy remember he descended to the the gold staircase the gold very place. very very slowly yeah because if you remember as, as john stewart said at the time on the daily show uh, only losers walk so um he, he descended very slowly to the the strains of uh rocking in the free world by by neil young which uh yeah it was more than a little ironic right like the hippie uh icon of the counterculture you know proper far left figure uh 
And Rocket in the Free World, again, is another song like Born in the USA that's replete with irony. That doesn't mean what people think it means, which actually has uh, you know, an ironic use of uh, lines from George H.W. Bush in, in the, the lyrics. And that, that, that was sort of the genesis of the like making it a conference paper for this sort of academic session in the run-up to uh, the election. Uh, but the Trump, you know, obviously got into some trouble with Don, with Neil Young, but that was well covered in the press. And then he sort of just has jumped from one idea to another in terms of, you know, what songs represent him. Uh, I mean, I always think it's really funny when when politicians, you know, try and align themselves with a, a pop culture figure. And then, then there's a, a backlash from said pop culture figure. And then they try and say, oh, I, I wasn't really a fan anyway, you know. Uh, my my favourite ones are... Uh, and, and it, uh, yeah, I don't want to pile on here, but it tends to be Republicans that get themselves into these messes. Um, part, you know, partly because of the the well known liberal bias in Hollywood. Um, but the the, the one I, the ones I really like were uh, Chris Christie, who spent you know who's obviously the governor of New Jersey and uh, spent years telling everyone that would listen how much of a fan of Bruce Springsteen he was, and would boast about having seen him two hundred times in concert. And uh, obviously, their politics differ quite. Widely, and when when Christie was, you know, running for president in the, the GOP primaries, uh, then all of a sudden, you know, was coming under attack from the, you know, the Tea Party and the, the further right uh, parts of the party, to which he then said, uh, you know, oh no, 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 I've always, I've always preferred uh, Bon Jovi, who are also from New Jersey, and you know, I don't even think, <laughs> I don't even think Bon Jovi's mum prefers Bon Jovi to Bruce Springsteen. I mean, it was just so brazen. And it's pandering that it was laughable, and then there was uh, that's a credibility gap right there. <laughs> exactly right. And then there was um, my my other favorite one was Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz uh, in 2015 told CNN that uh, you know music's interesting. Uh, I grew up listening to classic rock, uh, but my music's changed. My music changes. Ta- my music taste changed. Sorry, on 9/11. You know, I didn't like how rock music responded. So ever since 2001, Ted Cruz listens only to country music. <laughs> Again, just like you know, ridiculous, brazen nonsense. And then the the pièce de résistance is uh, Mike Huckabee. Uh, Mike Huckabee is you know obviously this evangelical, very uh, you know devout religious figure who's uh, toyed with running for president on, on more than one occasion. Has has run for president on more than one occasion. Who also plays bass in a a, a band called uh, Capital Offense. Uh, made up of congressmen and senators, uh, and, they're, and they're a rock, hard rock cover band. Uh, of course, they are. And he, he's a big fan of the, that noted uh, liberal bastion, uh, Ted Nugent. You know, the same Ted Nugent that threatened to assassinate Obama. And Ted Nugent of Cat Scratch Fever fame. Yes, yes. So, so, so Mike Huckabee um, spends a lot of time. Uh, castigating likes of Beyonce for their se- for sexually explicit lyrics, and yet he uh, plays uh, Catch Scratch oh, which is obviously all about uh, you know a man with a large sexual appetite who contracts syphilis. So again, you know, just complete lack of awareness, uh, and you know, I find it very entertaining. Can I can I just say though, I think that Mike Huckabee uh, has some form in this. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play this to the listeners. All I'm saying is go onto YouTube and search. Mike Huckabee, hello, 
and here his his his, his, his attempt to, to do an ad based on a Adele's song to capture Iowa's hearts. No, you're dead right. You're not playing that. But I mean, Mike Huckabee uh, just last night. One of the most bizarre musical moments of the current campaign was when he was on Fox News speaking to Megyn Kelly and tried to claim that Trump was like Captain Quint from Jaws and how you know Quint. You know, defeats Jaws, and he's the, and they, and Megan Kelly points out, well, Quint gets eaten. It's <laughs> it's, it's Brody that that kills Jaws anyway. But he keeps persisting with this line, and I had the bizarre moment of watching Megan Kelly singing the old sea shanty "Ladies of Spain" to Mike Huckabee, and I was like, is this the point the American elections got to? Is this where we're at, where Megan Kelly is singing "Ladies of Spain" to Mike Huckabee? But there was another moment just two hours actually before we started recording this episode where popular music intersected again with the campaign because Trump's having a bit of one, one of his periodic meltdowns at the moment. And the Clinton campaign released this video based on the 1986 soft rock hair metal nonsense, the final countdown by Europe, a song that kind of like rhymes Venus with Cena's and all these kind of, anyway, uh, called The Final Meltdown. And I was, uh, it's not very well sung, I must admit that, neither is the original. (laughs) But I was just thinking, where is this campaign going with this thing with popular music? It's so bizarre. Yeah, on that theme, let's let's shift back into history because we are a historic podcast after all. I mean, to kind of round out this section on music, um, Fraser, who would you say, like in recent history at least, has been the most successful um, in using music uh, to further their political ambitions? Oh, well, there, there are two outstanding uh, options, really. Uh, the first is Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton used uh, Don't Stop uh, Brackets Thinking About Tomorrow uh, by Fleetwood Mac. Uh, and that became a personal theme song. In fact, when he spoke at the convention just a few weeks back, he uh, he came on stage to that again. It's almost become you know his personal personal song, which is kind of interesting in itself. I mean, the reason it worked so well for him is that when he was running in ninety one into ninety two, um, you know that that that, that album uh, that was from Rumours uh, would be I don't know fifteen years, probably fifteen years old at that point, and. Uh, a lot of the, again, a lot of the baby boomers that were, you know, about to elect one of their own for the first time, I grew up, you know, listening to that that record. Um, it also is a song that comes across as being full of optimism, and obviously Bill Clinton famously tapped into that sort of. He's the new Kennedy, you know, was that famous photograph of him meeting John F. Kennedy as a as a school boy. Uh, that whole sort of, you know, young handsome. Uh, progressive politician image that he played up uh, to an extent uh, anyway, uh, worked really well with that optimistic song. I mean, obviously Bill Clinton became like John F. Kennedy in some other ways as well. And I think, uh, fact, uh, <laughs> I think the fact that he, he used a song from a record, which is all about, you know, marital infidelity was more than a little bit ironic. But yeah, yeah. but it doesn't. And seem I, was, I, was also, I was also going to say, if you're going to call Bill Clinton handsome, then you in running as that as a theme, you should watch the video of him and Al Gore running together, um, during the 1992 convention. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a sight to behold. This this is comparative handsomeness. I mean, you know, 
this is compared to George H.W. Bush and Bob Dole and Dan Quayle and some of the other people of the, the time. So, um, but the, so, so Bill Clinton has been really successful with that. And, and I say, I always find it strange that no one else picks up on this whole rumours thing, you know, Fleetwood Mac were, you know, full of, you know, complicated sexual politics and, uh, and, and couplings and, and, and drugs, yeah. But let's let's not let's not go uh, into sort of right wing conspiracy and start indicating Bill Clinton's on drugs. But certainly, you know, the marathon fidelity stuff is uh, you, you think would be more of a, a feature. But but no, he seems to have ridden that out. And uh, you know, the fact that song just reminds people of this time in the nineties when they had this surplus and there was no night. You know, there was no Al Qaeda and no ISIS. And, you know, things were good and Fresh Prince of Bel Air was on the telly and everything was happy. Uh, the other person that um, has the other candidate that's used pop music incredibly skillfully is uh, is the incumbent uh, Barack Obama. Uh, you know, Obama's uh, comes he comes around at this time when when you mentioned Spotify early on. You know, Spotify becomes a sort of massive feature of you know the the two thousand and eight and two thousand and twelve elections. Like Rolling Stone magazine publish candidates Spotify playlists. Which of course are probably curated, you know, uh, for maximum pub, uh, public relations effects. But um, Obama, in terms of his uh, pop culture uh, interactions, has been remarkably skillful. He's he's managed to use both white and black artists, which obviously reflect his his biracial heritage and his positioning himself as a post-racial candidate at the time. Uh, he worked uh, quite closely with Springsteen. He worked really closely with Stevie Wonder, who he calls his musical hero. Uh, he even worked with contemporary artists like uh, Jay-Z, uh, uh, Well I Am. You know, they, there was a you know, really, real contemporary flavour to a lot of his uh, campaign stuff. But the, the one that I always associate with, uh, the song I always associate with Barack Obama's Stevie Wonder, uh, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, which, again, he still uses today he, you know that was his, his music yeah. at the the, uh, the recent convention and it, it just you know stevie wonder is an artist who was incredibly popular with right across the board you know one of the biggest selling arts of all time so popular with, with white and black uh, listeners um but you know it's very much a black artist you know comes out with the motown tradition and then becomes more radical both in his uh political outlook but even more so in his um his song structure and his musical stylings and embraces the, you know, the African heritage and his dress and his dreadlocks and all that stuff. Um, and since he delivered just, just really matches the Obama demeanor of, you know, you know, the famous meme of uh, everybody chill. I got this, uh, you know, it's just perfect for him. And uh, I think that was, uh, I think I would say that's the most, most successful since Clinton, certainly. Cool. So moving on from music then, um, if we think, I mean, this July at the Republican National Convention, uh, Donald Trump emerged in, in silhouette form to Queen's We Are the Champions in the manner that you can only associate with, if you've ever watched the WWE wrestling. To this moment, the final confirmation of politics as entertainment, you know, it is, or is Trump an outlier? And I'm aiming that question at both of you. You know, I want to know both your thoughts. What, what's going on here? Well, I mean, firstly, it's uh, it's kind of interesting that you draw that uh, comparison with the you know WWE uh, professional wrestling. I'm about to out myself a little bit as a somewhat of a fan, uh, which is embarrassing enough. But it's all right, Fraser. So am I. 
how how it, how it works in wrestling is when when um, a theme song starts, the, the the crowd reacts. It's called the pop, and uh, it's the same thing, right? This is this is essentially what they're trying to do. It's an association with what's about to happen, and with Trump, uh, you know, it's again ironic. Trump is actually a member of the WWE Hall of Fame. Uh, he's been involved in a WrestleMania match, uh, so the fact that he is, uh, you know. And this, this whole thing, you know, the, the classic cliche about about uh, politics is that it's gladiatorial combat. But actually, increasingly, it's become more like over the top, um, like professional wrestling, the pyro and ballyhoo and nonsense, really. Um, so yeah, I think I mean it's I don't know if it's the final confirmation of politics as entertainment. I mean, years ago, uh, I mean I've heard you know obviously you know I'm a fan of the podcast and I listen every every uh, episode. And you've talked about some great historians, and you've been through the historiography um, of American American history uh, over the centuries. And I'd like to add one more really famous historian, uh, Frank Zappa, who uh, called poli- he called politics the uh, entertainment division of the military industrial complex. And in some respects, like this has come to pass, right? This idea that uh, politics is part of general entertainment and it distracts people from. The real issues, whatever you know, whatever your view on those issues are, I mean, you can you can take that from either side of the aisle. But part of this whole thing, where uh, potential candidates, or you know, during the primary season, go on the the rounds of the late night talk shows, for you know, for example, it's kind of unthinkable. But you you know, you can't imagine Jimmy Carter going on the Daily Show and the, you know, well running for president. I know he goes on now, but you know, you certainly can't imagine Nixon doing the the. the uh, talk show circuit i mean it is i mean it's it's fascinating the fact that trump is you know first and foremost I mean, perhaps more than being a businessman as a a reality tv figure with the apprentice and and all that kind of thing and the, the sheer unrelenting length of the american presidential campaign you know practically two years of campaigning and selection of candidates and all this kind of stuff and it becomes you know i think in the modern era it's becoming now i mean much less of a political event and more of this kind of large-scale reality tv exercise and the winner gets the ability to wage thermonuclear war on foreign <laughs> powers that's the ultimate prize that they get at the end it's not getting off an island or becoming a chef in a restaurant you get to nuke other countries if you feel like it on a bad day. Uh, so, I mean, there's there's something in this thing about politics as I don't have an you know I don't have an answer to that, but politics as spectacle, as entertainment, and we're all however awful Trump is, and the stuff he says is abhorrent and terrible and just mind-bogglingly awful, but you can't look away. It is this. It is an unending stream of a horrifying kind of entertainment. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I would actually argue though that while while we're seeing it in a different form this time, I'd say that politics as entertainment is as old as politics. Close debates that took place in the eighteen fifties. I mean, they were a camp campaign entertainment for their day. Uh, you know, people came for two hours to watch these two slug it out. Doesn't sound like entertainment to me. You didn't have as many other distractions as we do today. That was their form of entertainment. And also, I mean, any good political consultant will tell you that from going all the way back that a candidate has to have a narrative. 
to tell voters. They have to have, you know, why am I running? Why is that? Because, the, you know, the public need to be invested um, as just as they need to be invested in television characters, for example. So, I mean, my, while I think you, it's maybe more flashy than it used to be and it's different forms than it used to be, I, I don't think there's been any great change. Well, there's a, a couple of points to pick up there. Firstly, Mark, you're kidding no one when you say that uh, going to see two politicians debate for two hours is not entertainment to you. We both know better than that. It's this reality TV aspect of it that Malcolm, I think, rightly uh, picks up on. Um, and the thing is that we, we talk about the length of the, the, uh, the process. The length of the process is in part driven by the media. And it's important to the media that they have a horse race. It's important that they have controversy. It's important they have content to fill all this time. Now, I don't want to sound like the conspiracy theorist that some people think I am, but, you know, there's definitely an aspect of this here that, that, that Trump and his outrageous, abhorrent, you know, vile uh, conduct and statements drives ratings and drives interest and ratings drive advertising buys. And, you know, it's one of the problems with the modern... Uh, American media and the you know the corporately owned structures and you know this is not uh, you, you can't imagine Walter Cronkite and Ed Burrow covering you know the the latest uh, Trump video or you know so there's there's definitely issues there that revolve around you know television and commerce and the selling of the media to corporate interests which have got nothing to do with ideology by the way I mean that's usually the Conspiracy theories take on it is that ideology drives these things, Fox News or whatever. Actually, you know, it's commerce. And uh, the more people that watch the news, the more valuable the advertising time is in between. And the thing that's making people watch the news now is Trump. So when Trump has a, when he had his quieter spells, which is hard to remember, you know, the viewership of Rachel Maddow or, or whatever, Morning Joe or any of these shows uh, goes down. So, you know, part of it's on, on uh, but I mean, actually, ultimately, it's on all of us. Uh, those of us that tune in and, and watch it, like, Mal- uh, like Malcolm says, we can't oh, yeah. look away. Yeah, I mean, and I think this—I mean, you're you're dead right, and it's the relentless demands of this twenty-four-hour rolling news cycle these days, which which is something that didn't exist, you know, in times of the you know, in terms of the you know, the Lincoln-Douglas debates or even earlier parts of the twentieth century and all that kind of thing. They didn't have this relentless, globalized, social mediaized. 24-hour news cycle. I mean, you can look back at kind of other moments in kind of like, you know, the presidential races entertainment, the 1960 Kennedy-Nixon, you know, debates. You know, the famous ones where, you know, Nixon comes across looking all sweaty and shifty and all that kind of thing. But people that listened to the debate on radio said Nixon won. People watched it on TV said Kennedy won. Or the, you know, the 1968 convention coverage, you know, that featured William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal meant to be debating the issues that came out of these conventions, but end up just taking rhetorical lumps out of each other. You know, was it, I mean, Vidal calls, is it, is he calls Buckley, is that a crypto-fascist or a crypto-Nazi? And then Buckley turns turns to Vidal and says, well, what is he? He says, I'll, I'll sock you in the face and you'll stay socked, you goddamn queer. He's yes, a really, really homophobic I, statement that he makes. I, I mean, I'm... I'm going to keep arguing my case here because I just think it's just taking advantage of whatever form is available. I mean, if you think back to FDR uh, taking advantage of radio in a way that nobody ever had, speaking soothingly into the microphone rather than a politician making a speech, for example. 
like I, I, I just don't think that there's been this great morality. Like, we always have this tendency where we want to go, oh, it's not the way it used to be. We used to be so much more civil. That's a lot of nonsense. Well, I, I, no, but, it, I no, but it's not. Peak, I think you have peaks of incivility. You have peaks like where there's more contentiousness. Like, for example, can you imagine like what people were? I mean, Charles Sumner got hit in the head with a cane. You know, almost beaten to death during the 1850s. Like, I, I just don't, I, I don't think there's much. Difference. I think, I think the media landscape has changed so much, and the demands of media have changed so much that that it's in itself changes politics. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates and go, yeah, politics is entertainment, but how many people went to the Lincoln-Douglas debates? How many? These days, it's com- it's completely different. I, I get what you're saying, but I but think who, it's been... Who is, who is likely to be the next president of the United States? Uh, Donald J. Trump. <laughs> it's, it's likely to be Hillary Clinton, and you can't argue to me that she is some whiz with the media. In fact, she's one of the most incompetent candidates when it comes to presenting a, a narrative of herself you know a sort of an image that that, that supposedly is what everybody's going for so. yeah, you, you say that you say that though but the, the sort of hints back to your previous point about you know people using whatever means are available whatever form of media is is the in thing at the time hillary clinton is terrible in interviews she's comes across as uh you know as, as false not very genuine not very warm but her her or her team are very very good at using the the media method of the moment, which is Twitter. You know, Hillary Clinton's Twitter uh, page is is really effective. It's really effective at setting the agenda. It's really effective at smacking down the nonsense. You know, so I think what it highlights there is that there are ways in which politicians can use the current and uh, on vote current uh, on trend media method without necessarily descending to the the Trump thing. And that's uh, you know I think. You say Trump is an outlier. Well, I hope he's an outlier in terms of presidential candidates. But I think he's actually just quite reflective of um, large aspects of society uh, and and internet users and, you know, that sort of anonymous, faceless uh, uh, blogger culture. To quote a popular song, the public gets what the public wants. Yeah, yeah. So before we get into a kind of even more heated uh, three-way Buckley-Vidal kind of uh, argument over this kind of thing, I mean, who really finds election campaigns entertaining anyway? Vigorously puts up his hands. Yes, I I can see that one coming. Uh, I mean, are we just taking the point of view of academic dweebs who say things like, oh, good, it's on (laughs) C-SPAN? Or is there actually a wider global interest not in the substance and outcomes of the presidential campaign, thinking about 2016, but in the gloss and the glitz and what I think of as just the creeping existential horror of the entire thing. Yeah, I, I'm. I have long said to to students when I've had to like sort of just approach politics broadly. I think politics is a sport, um, but it's a sport that matters more than sport. Um, so you get the whole kind of drama. If you imagine, for example, a football game, there's a huge big build-up. Um, you know, it almost becomes as important as the match itself. And then there's a huge big fallout. And then they look at, look forward once again to the next match where everything can change again. Um, so I, I think there are... Sorry. But it's unlikely that the, uh, for example, the Dallas Cowboys are going to invade Iraq at any time. But that's, that's my point, that yes. politics is sport that matters. 
Um, and also, I don't think anyone has ever said, oh, good, it's on C-SPAN. <laughs> I've never even said that. I bet you have. I, th- I think to... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think anyone's ever said it about C-SPAN, but if anyone has, it would be Mark. The, um, I think it's fair to say that the uh, interest is huge. I mean, the, you just have to look at the, the television viewing figures for the, the first two debates in the 2016 cycle. Um, I, I mean, they're mammoth. And this is in a time in which television viewership is in decline, right, thanks to the internet. And, you know, Twitter, for example, broadcast the, the debate live, uh, which is how I watched it. Um, so the first debate between Clinton and Trump attracted 84 million viewers in the United States. And the second one was 66.5 million viewers. Uh, to give some context to that, the uh, the highest uh, the highest one before I think was uh, about seventy million viewers for uh, for nineteen ninety two. It was a three way between Clinton and Bush uh, Senior and Perot. Uh, but and you know, so the first one shattered that. I mean, eighty four million viewers is is a mammoth number. I mean, if you think about uh, NFL football, which is the in American television culture is the the gold standard in terms of assured audience. Um, Fifteen million people watched the game that was on uh, at the same time as the the first debate. So you know the interest is huge, and that doesn't even begin to you know you all you do is look at the coverage on on the BBC, and you can imagine that's the same in in other Western countries and beyond. You know, so I think that the interest is huge. I don't think that necessarily relates to. Uh, the interest people have in politics generally. I think it's the, I see again, it's the razzmatazz and the promise of uh, controversy that, that draws eyeballs to these things and hence why this year's was so big. But I definitely think there's there's a, a widespread popular interest in presidential debates. Yeah, so with, here we are less than a month away from the election. Um, I'm assuming we will all be up watching it at some point. Uh, playing into that entertainment industry side of it. And at some point during the night, it will be in the wee hours here in uh, in Great Britain, one of the two candidates will emerge to the theme music. Will it be Katy Perry? Will it be whatever Donald Trump's music is by then? We'll find out then. But it will all be part of the show. And on that note, I think we should probably end today's discussion which I've had great fun and especially learning so much about the, the history of the music and presidential campaigns so thanks a lot Fraser for once again sharing your wealth of knowledge yeah thank uh, you Fraser absolutely ple- absolute pleasure as always gents and we'll also uh, be back next month uh, with a slightly sharp turn towards the discussion of the history of the CIA in America um, and Malcolm as always pleasure to have your company no thank you very much Mark and thank you again to Fraser And thank you, everybody. Uh, Enjoy the election. Bye-bye. Goodbye.